Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Bob, for reading that for us. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are so glad that you're with us today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so thankful for your presence. Thanks for, what, for uh, braving the weather, for making it through. It's good to have you here as we continue on in this series. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Well, years ago when I was in college, there was a guy who lived directly across the hall uh, from me in my dorm. We came in as freshmen together and we had struck up a friendship and some way through the course of the year, he had invited me and several other guys to go with him out mountain climbing. Now, initially I was interested. I had never done any substantial mountain climbing before, but mainly the reason I was interested is because I didn't understand everything that was entailed in actual real life mountain climbing. The extent of my mountain climbing experience to that portion of my life had been a few, few well-timed demonstrations of athletic prowess at Devil's Lake, jumping from one rock to another. And that was pretty much the sole experience I had with any kinds of mountain climbing. But, but this guy had grown up in Colorado, right outside of Denver. He'd been climbing in the Rockies since he was old enough to knot a rope. I mean, this kid had grown up on the hills and in the mountains. He had all kinds of experience with it. And when when I talk about mountain climbing in this context, I don't mean hiking, I mean real life mountain climbing where you've got a, a bag of chalk and you've got all this equipment and you've got ropes and if you fall over a sheer cliff with nothing but air in between you, the only thing that is holding on to you is a rope and something called a carabiner. And I just, I could not for the life of me entrust myself to the idea that my life was gonna be dependent on this tiny little bit of equipment and the experience of a college freshman. It just didn't seem like a good idea to me. And I don't have a fear of heights, but I do have a, a healthy respect, I think, of gravity. And, and the idea that were I to slip, my entire life would be taken in my hands was just something I couldn't get past. And of course, naturally, when I turned down the invitation and gave my explanation as to why I wasn't going to go, I became the object of ribbing 
And I, and I became all of a sudden the object of all kinds of statistics. People were throwing information at me. You know you're more likely to die from a lightning strike than falling off of a mountain. And first of all, I'd like to see the statistics on that. I don't, I don't know that when you pull out the lightning strike defense, you just get to say whatever you want after you've said it. But I was viewing it that their perspective was completely wrong. I was looking at it from the perspective of, if I don't climb a mountain to begin with, it's a virtual impossibility that I will die climbing a mountain. Right? It's like that quote from Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And some people take that as motivation. I take it as permission not to take that shot to begin with. And the experience that I had going forward from that moment was the requisite ridicule. But I think I showed tremendous courage and bravery. Because in the face of all that ridicule and all that peer pressure, I did not buckle and go mountain climbing. Now, did I really have a reason to back out of that? Did I really have a substantial reason to fear for my life? The truth of the matter was the kinds of mountain climbing we were going to do probably was not going to be taking my life into my hands. It probably wasn't that much of a risk. But the truth of the matter was in that moment, there was no amount of reassurance that those guys were going to give me that was going to move me past my own hesitation. And that's the thing about how life works. If if every decision we made was solely based on knowledge or statistics, we would probably live our lives very differently than we do. See, in that moment, I didn't have a knowledge problem. I had a belief problem. And that's usually the case for us spiritually as well. Our will and our intellect, what we know to be true, and the way that those things actually bear out in our life are not always headed in the same direction. And that's certainly true in the case of the life of Abram. You'll remember that when we left off, Abram or Abraham, those names, names are used interchangeably, and we'll get to a passage where we actually explain why that is. But Abram had responded to the call of God. God had come to him after years of silence. He comes to this man whose family had completely forgotten about the one true God, the worship of Yahweh following the God who had delivered their forefathers, Noah and Shem. And now Abram finds himself in this position where he's worshiping the false gods of this world. And God appears to him and says, I'm going to come to you and to your wife at 75 years old and 65 years old, and I'm going to make a great nation of you, even though to this point in your life you haven't been able to have children. And I'm going to take you to a land that you haven't seen yet, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to make your name great, and anybody who causes a problem for you, I'm going to curse, and anyone who blesses you, I'm going to bless. And this land that I'm going to give to you, I'm not even going to tell you exactly where it is. You're just going to have to trust me that you'll know it when you see it. And Abraham, in that moment, makes a decision of faith and follows God into the unknown. He deservedly gets recognition for the faith that he demonstrates in that moment. But in the space of just a few verses, we see a shift in Abraham's heart and life. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now there is likely no one in this room who's experienced the fear associated with famine. Because more than likely, we have never in our lives been dependent on our own gardens or on our own farms to provide provision and, and sustenance for our family. We're reliant on pick and save, right? The closest thing we can imagine is what we experienced a couple of years ago at the height of COVID, where because of supply restraints, we couldn't find toilet paper. And that was terrifying enough for people, right? 
But imagine finding yourself in a situation where everything you need to live and to survive is suddenly gone. There's no crops, there's nothing to to harvest, there's nothing to glean, there's nothing to find, there's no berries out in the wild, there's no random crops that are still left standing. Famine had hit this land so hard that Abram and Sarai and everyone who was traveling with them and all of the animals that belonged to them, their very lives were at stake. What they were experiencing here was a very real and natural and to to a certain extent a right fear, a concern for where was their next meal going to come from? Imagine finding yourself in that sort of a scenario. And what Abram did inherently in this moment was not wrong at all. He decided he was going to head out and find food for those that, for those that were in his family and for those that were traveling with him. He heads into Egypt where, where it was known that there was food readily available. But the problem came when Abram slipped back into his old mindset. The problem wasn't that he was looking for food. The problem was that the attitude that came along with it. He began to slip into the mindset that we all find ourselves in. How am I going to make things work? How can I control the chaos? How can I manipulate my circumstances to ensure my well-being? How can I make my own life work? When everything seems to be spinning out of control and nothing is certain and life is terrifying, what do I do? And Abraham's turn in this moment is the same turn that many of us make. We have to make life happen on our terms. And not only did Abram doubt in this moment that God would provide what he needed, but he also feared that God would allow what had belonged to him to be taken. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance something every wife wants to hear, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with you, go well with me rather because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And the romance is gone from that conversation. I mean, think about it. Abram trusted God so much that he could take his, his wife and all of his belongings, everything that belonged to him, he could leave his homeland and everybody that he'd ever known. He could venture into a far-off land with his wife, and, and both of them are long past the age of childbearing, and he trusted God so much that he figured there was some way God was going to provide him with a family, an inheritance, a nation that was so vast that it literally could not be numbered by anybody other than God. But he did not trust God with his own safety. And you see in this rationale of Abram two motivations, both of which are completely understandable, humanly speaking. First, he was scared to lose Sarah. We don't know a lot about Sarah. We don't find out about a lot about her in the story, but what we know about her is that she is a beautiful woman. She's about 65 years old, and apparently at 65, she was so stunning in her appearance that Abram knew that upon entering Egypt, she was going to attract attention. Here is this woman whom Abram had loved for his whole adult life. She's the apple of his eye, and at this point, in their lives, they had likely been together for about 50 years. There's a lot of history and a lot of affection and a lot of 
a lot of love between these two, and his fear was that upon seeing Sarai, the Egyptian royalty would find her so beautiful and so desirable that they would simply insist on taking her away from him. And secondly, and more startlingly, as you read this account, Abram is scared for himself. He feared that when the Egyptians saw her, the natural next step that they would take would be to execute him so that they could take her away. Now, on one hand, that's a reasonable concern given the culture of this time where what the Pharaoh said went and nobody could question it and nobody could challenge it. And if the Pharaoh had his sights set on somebody, they would inevitably inevitably belong to him no matter what the cost was. But Abram had already forgotten the promise and the presence of God. But remember, God had promised Abram that he would give him an inheritance and make a great nation of him and Sarai. So clearly, God had a plan in mind to protect her as well. And Abram, at least theoretically, trusted God with the future. He trusted God to provide him a whole nation, a vast inheritance, but he could not trust him with the present. He trusted God with his eternity, but not with the immediate. And I think we have a tendency to do the very same thing. If I were to ask you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as one who knows your sin is forgiven by Jesus and that you've been given new life and adoption and and all of those sorts of things, how confident are you that God has the ability to save your soul and to give you an eternity with him in his presence and, and all of those things? If I were to ask any Orthodox Christian, anyone who believes the true gospel of Jesus Christ, if they believe that, to a person they would say, yes. And though we may have doubts and fears and wonders along the way, by and large, the answer from believers to that question is, absolutely, I believe God has the power to save me eternally and provide me with eternal life. So why is it then that we can speak with confidence about our spiritual salvation but not trust God with the financial hardships or our family issues? Why can we trust God with our eternal destiny, but not with our medical fears or our daily anxieties? There's probably a host of explanations, but at least two come to mind for me. First, we presume that God doesn't care about the little things. We just presume that God doesn't care about the little things, either that he's too busy or he's got too much going on or he only concerns himself with the, with the big things in our life, but the small things he leaves up to us. I've heard people use phrases like, well, the reason I don't pray is because God has bigger things to deal with than me. God has more on his plate, as if somehow he is limited in his attention or his ability to interact, as if somehow God's God's interest declines because of the severity of your particular issue. But let me ask you, just anecdotally in your own life, whether or not you have children, if they came to you in a particular moment with whatever fear or worry or concern they might have, no matter how small and no matter how realistic, would a parent ignore the anxieties of a child's life? Would a parent just ignore their child altogether for being foolish or for worrying about something that they need not worry? See, when something bothers a child, even if it's something that that child shouldn't worry about, a loving parent addresses and assures and provides care and counsel 
and comfort. And so naturally, the question that follows, in fact, it's, a, it's, a, it's an answer that Jesus gives us in the Gospels, is this. If sinful parents are able to provide that kind of love and reassurance and care and counsel and presence for their children, how much, how much more is God interested, infinitely interested, in the minutia of your life? The small little things in your life that seemingly, or perhaps literally, no one else cares about, including, by the way, your own parents or your own spouse or your own children, that God is infinitely interested in you. And this goes back to an idea that we talk about a lot, which is for most of us, we don't have an issue with understanding that God loves us on some level or another. At least, at least in an ethereal, broad sense, we can believe in an affection that God has towards us. But because we know that we are naturally not very likable, we have a very hard time believing that God likes us. That his love for us is merely an endurance of us. That his love for us is merely some sort of cosmic self-discipline in which God puts up with us despite ourselves, rather than the love of a parent towards a child. Infinite interest, infinite care, infinite compassion, infinite concern for even the smallest interest of your life. Even for the most unreasonable fear you have. How interested then must God have been in the very real fear that Abram and Sarai were experiencing. Eugene Peterson paraphrased the prayer of David in Psalm 139 this way, I'm an open book to you, God. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back, I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then I look up ahead, and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. That is the love, the concern, the interest that God has for his children. And if you are his child, then that promise is good for you too. That he knows you, that infinitely walks with you, that closely cares for you, that deeply. There is nothing, nothing, so insignificant in your life that God does not concern himself with it. And there is nothing so big in your life that God is not in control of it. But when we presume that God is uninterested, inevitably the result then is that we do not go to him in prayer. And in neglecting prayer and our time with the Lord, we rob ourselves of the freedom and reassurance that he provides. He's there the whole time, by the way. Make no mistake, like any loving parent, he, he's with us and he loves us and he pursues us and he provides for us, but we rob ourselves of the enjoyment and the reassurance of that presence. But the second reason we trust God with the future but not with the present is that we actually don't trust him with anything. Now that statement inherently is counterintuitive and I wrote it intentionally that way, so I'll repeat it. The second reason we trust God with the future, but not with the present, is that we actually don't trust him with anything. Here's what I mean. It is easy on some level or another to have, to have faith and confidence about things that are far away and distant in our lives. 
things around which we have not yet been tested. Because our faith is not tested most often in thinking about things that are far off and distant. So here's, here's how we illustrate that. When, when you're 20 years old, you might have all kinds of confidence about the way that your life is gonna go. And to pick one particular narrow slice to look at, in particular, you might have all kinds of confidence about your ability someday to retire in comfort to retire with no financial concerns, maybe even to retire in some sort of luxurious way. But as that day begins to draw closer, you might start to have questions. Maybe my retirement isn't going to be as luxurious as I thought it was going to be. Or maybe it's not going to be comfortable at all. Or maybe I'm not going to be able to retire. Well, what's happening? What was once distant and far off finds its way closer and closer in your life. We are weak and temporal creatures, and our ability to rationalize away the future, to ascribe some level of faith that has met no test yet, and ascribe that faith to God's ability to do something in the future when we do not believe he can do it in the presence, our ability to rationalize in that moment is unmatched. It may be the thing that we're best at, rationalizing away what we have yet to be tested in. In times of momentary distress or immediate worry, we are, we are being given an opportunity to exercise our weak faith so that we can build up trust in the infinite ability of God to care for us in even more dire situations. And as life goes on and as tests come, often tests that are far harder than we ever would have expected or certainly would have asked for, one of the gifts that comes through those tests is you're able to see God's hand move and work in ways that were unexpected. And it then in turn gives you an ability to look forward with a little bit more confidence than you had before at what God is potentially able to do. But for whatever reason, where Abram found himself in this moment, he didn't trust God with that. He felt, as we all do at times, that he needed to engineer and manipulate the circumstances of his life in order to ensure his own protection. And the reason Abram gave in to these fears in this moment is that he had already forgotten his God-given identity. He had already forgotten what God had said to him. He had forgotten the spiritual rescue that he'd already experienced. He'd forgotten his current position as a covenant child of God. He'd forgotten the promise of God that guaranteed his own future. In other words, as we talked about last week, when you forget God's providence in the past, you will inevitably have anxiety about the future, to quote one theologian. So to the extent that you struggle with whatever it is you're walking through right now or what's around the corner or what you haven't experienced yet but inevitably will, the question for you needs to be this. How have I seen God work faithfully over time in small ways and in big ways to meet my deepest needs, to care for me in ways that I did not expect, to love me when I was least lovable? How has he showed himself faithful? so that I can then trust him in this moment. And we talked about that at length last week. 
But when we sin or give in to fear or try to manipulate our own lives to achieve the outcome we desire, we do the very same thing Abram did. To paraphrase the old adage, when the Christian sins, he is experiencing temporary amnesia. He has momentarily forgotten who he is in Christ. So what happens? Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman, that is Sarai, was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So understand what's happening. They enter into, the, in, into Egypt. The Egyptian men notice Sarai's beauty immediately, just as Abram had expected them to do. Abra, Abram uh, tells them that Sarai is his sister, and so they bring her to the Pharaoh to be Pharaoh's wife. And notice what happens next. Abram is lavished with all kinds of gifts. He's treated generously. He is treated gently. We're told that he is treated well for the sake of Sarai. Pharaoh gives him all kinds of wealth and all kinds of money and all kinds of animals and gives him servants and he takes Sarai into his house. In other words, listen, Abram got exactly what he wanted. Exactly what he wanted. Everything has gone to this point according to his plan. Do you notice that? Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram and Sarai had both been safe from immediate physical harm. They had gotten material goods out of the situation. It seemed as if everything had gone perfectly according to Abram's plan. But Abram's own scheming led to his wife being taken away. In trying to manipulate his circumstance, he had lost his wife, the most precious thing in the world to him, and he had lost in her the means by which God was going to deliver this great nation to him. He had traded the future for the present. See, holding to our own plans and our own desires at the expense of God's will is like trying to hold on to sand. The tighter you hold on to it, the more it just squeezes through your fingers. But notice that God in this moment, in his goodness, does not say to Abram what he very easily could have said, which is, listen, Abram, you made your bed, you lie in it. You got the greatest curse in the world. You were given exactly what you wanted. Are you happy now? You've got these animals and you've got servants and you've got your life. This is what you wanted, isn't it? Well, enjoy the rest of your experience because the promises I've given you are gone. He very easily could have said that. But notice what God in his goodness actually does. He supernaturally intervenes. He sends plagues onto the house of Pharaoh in order to reveal to Pharaoh what had actually happened. 
So understand this, despite the fact that it was Abram who sinned, who deserved the punishment, who deserved the discipline, God punished Pharaoh for taking Sarai. Why? Because he had promised back in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in so doing, God actually restored what Abram most desperately desired but was too foolish to see. He maintained his own promise to both Abram and Sarai. We've talked about this at length in the past, but we talk in Christianity about this idea of the the dual blessing of life in Christ is grace and mercy. And there's all kinds of ways that we could define those two terms, but perhaps the simplest way is to say it this way. Mercy is when we do not get the consequences that we deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is when we receive the blessing that we do not deserve. Grace and mercy are sisters. They're the flop opposite of one another, and they work in tandem in the divine plan of God to care for his people. And Abram in this moment did not get what he did deserve, which was to lose the most precious gift he had ever been given by God and with her the promise that God had extended to him. But he did receive the blessing of God in that his wife was returned to him and with her the blessing of God along with his physical safety and everything else he was worried about. The blessing, to quote one theologian, did not depend on Abram's conduct, but on God's call. In other words, the assurance of blessing depends on the giver, not the receiver. And I think that is a helpful reminder for us because in our in our daily interactions, in our daily lives, most of us tend to operate by the principles of karma, not grace. We assume that we are going to get back what we put into the world. And so when we have done something wrong, inevitably, and things in turn don't go well in life for us, we presume that one is related to another. God is now punishing me, I'm getting my just desserts. And when I'm doing right and I'm doing my devotions and I'm saying the right things and I'm living the right way, well, certainly God owes me blessing because I put the good things out into the universe. No, that has nothing to do with Christian faith. That's karma, not Christianity. It's folk religion. But what we see from Christianity, what we see of the one true God is a God who interacts with his people the way that he did with Abram where Abram deserved punishment, dismissal. He deserved to lose the promise, to lose the covenant of God. But God said, my covenant is not conditional on you because if it was, you wouldn't be able to hold up your your end of the bargain ever. And the same thing is true in our lives. The same thing is true of our own salvation. If your salvation was initially dependent on the grace of God toward your life, but only able to be maintained based on your ability to obey or do the right thing or live the right way, no one would be saved. No one. But God says your salvation is not dependent on your ability to do right. It is dependent on my son, Jesus Christ's ability to do right. And he did it once for all, perfectly for you so that you now get the benefits of his life. You now get the grace that comes from being a child of God. You get the mercy extended that the son himself did not receive, where Jesus experienced the wrath of God on your behalf. So I think the practical question for us this morning is this, what do we do 
when we're in the moment where we have forgotten, like Abram, our identity in Christ? What do we do when for the first or the fifth or the thousandth time we find ourselves sinning against God, feeling so dejected and so low with such a poor opinion of ourselves? What do we do in that moment we run to him? And the truth is that that seems, at least practically in our lives, counterintuitive. One author said it this way, it seems counterintuitive to sin and then immediately to fall on your knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We harbor in our hearts the false belief that somehow we have to pay for our sins just a little. But repentance isn't groveling. You repent when you agree with God that your sin is wicked and flee to the only one who can do helpless sinners any good. So what if after you've sinned, you didn't grovel for a week, but instead ran immediately to the Savior who came into the world to save sinners? In other words, your Christian maturity the way that you, are, that, you, that you know that you are actively growing in Christ can be indicated by how long it takes you to run to his presence when you've sinned. We all have that feeling, don't we, where we've sinned and we just go, man, the last thing God wants to hear from is me right now. I've got to show my sincerity at least a little bit. I've got to read my devotions or I've got to listen to some worship music or something. And God's standing there going, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. I'm right here and your only hope is me. So just come. I know what you've done already. You haven't fooled me. Your sin isn't hidden from me and you haven't somehow made yourself more acceptable by waiting. Just come. And that's hard for us as believers because in the moment of failure, what we hear is the voice of Satan the accuser. And he speaks to us in lies and he says to us, you call yourself a Christian and yet you live like this? You call yourself a Christian and yet you went back to that same old well that you've been going to for years? How could God love a loser like you? How could God rescue a failure like you? How could God forgive a serial sinner like you? Martin Luther writes of this exact experience, and he imagines a scenario where he's hearing the the accusation of Satan and, and writes this response to Satan. Here's what he says. Satan, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet, for Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I'm a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. And I just wonder how different our lives would look if we were able to put that that response of Luther into practice in our lives where in the moment, either because of some sort of spiritual accusation of Satan or just that little voice of conscience in our own mind accusing us, the little judge that sits deep within our heart, 
who tells us you're not good enough and God doesn't love you and he doesn't care about you and he's forgotten about you and how could he ever love someone like you if you were able in that moment to instead hear those accusations of sinner, 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 and instead of undercutting your position of God, all it does is reinforce your position because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So brother and sister, when we fall and when we fail, the invitation of the Father is to run to him in absolute confidence of our acceptance. To be reminded that the very same God of Abram is the same God who hears our prayers today, who's with us in the moments when we doubt, who sees us in our sin and still loves and accepts and, listen, even blesses. Despite the fact that we do not deserve blessing on any level. And that is what we observe when we come to the Lord's table. symbol of the infinite blessing and love of God towards us. So when we come to the table, we partake of the bread which represents the body of Jesus Christ, the body that he gave for you, the body that he gave up of his own accord, his own volition, his own will that no one was going to take his life from him, yet he laid it down freely for you. And then we drink of the juice or the wine which represents the, the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that washes away every sin. The blood that had been foretold and prophesied thousands of years earlier as the only blood that was going to bring permanent, lasting forgiveness of sin. And in partaking of those things, we are reminded of our communion, our common union with God himself. We're reminded of his presence with us. That God is not far off sitting on a cloud, distant and removed, that he is with us now. That Christ is with us now. That he is present with us in communion. And when we remember that, it points us as well to our communion one with another that we have not been saved as Lone Ranger Christians. We have not been left by ourselves to figure out life. We have been given a family, a body, with which to live out the life that God has called us to. And so in just a few moments, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray and, and take some time in silence. And that time in silence is to spend time being with God, to talk to him, to hear from him, to, to listen to him. And then to come forward and receive the elements, please come down these two more central aisles and then return on the outside if you're able. Take each one of each of the elements and then please wait on taking them. We'll, we'll take those together in just a moment after that. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus or you're not sure what you believe about all of this, we would just ask that you not partake in this table today. Not, not merely as a prohibition, but really as an invitation for you to consider and think about what it is we've talked about today. God loves and cares for you that much that you're not here by accident or by mistake. So let's pray, and then we'll go to that time. Lord God, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And since you're the same, we can be confident that your love and your affection and your blessing of our lives will play out in much the way that it did in Abram's life. 
that your love and affection and your care was not dependent on Abram's ability to obey or hold up his end of the bargain. You knew before you ever covenanted with him that he would be a failure and still you loved him. Still you blessed him. God, you knew before the foundations of the world were laid that mankind would be desperately in need of a savior. And you chose us to be sons and daughters. That Jesus Christ would willingly lay down his life for us. To bring us into your family, to to assure us of our pardon, to adopt us. To bring us into communion with you. And so as we come to your table this morning, God, we pray that we would be reminded of the goodness of a Savior who loves us that much and is present with us today. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.